Good morning. We're so glad you could join us here at the Walla Walla University Church as we broadcast this Easter weekend. I think today makes a month of us broadcasting to an empty sanctuary. You are not here. We notice. We miss you. I want to take a moment this morning just to acknowledge the many people um, who in various ways are able to make this broadcast happen. I mean, sitting six feet apart, but pouring hours of their life and of their talent into bringing you this broadcast. We're so grateful for those who uh, work and those who plan and those who allow us scattered to still worship together. I'm grateful for our minister of music. I'm grateful for our pastors. I'm grateful for all of the technical team who allow this to take place each week. Join me as we pray this morning. Father in heaven, we are asking that you come into our hearts and into our lives this morning. It's a strange time to be celebrating Easter. It's a tenuous time to be turning the corner to resurrection. And yet we do it. And we ask that your spirit will abide with us, that you will speak peace and comfort, that you will give us chinks of light in the darkness. We pray that the words which are spoken today will find home in our hearts. We pray that the seeds which are planted will be watered and will bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you had booked a direct flight from SeaTac to LAX on August the 31st, uh, let's say 2001, you could comfortably arrive at the airport probably about an hour before your flight was to take off. And when you got to the airport on August the 31st, 2001, you could have wandered through the airport with a sense of ease and relaxation. You would have had a bottle of water full. You could have gone through security with minimal pat-downs, kept your shoes on, your jacket on. You could have taken your Chanel Number 5 perfume and you could have stored that on your hand luggage. If your friend had time, the one who had dropped you off at the front of the airport, they could have even left their car, come to the gate with you, and waved goodbye. Now, if you had gone to SeaTac in the last few months, you'd have had a radically different experience if you're trying to fly from SeaTac to LAX. First of all, you would not have arrived just one hour early. You would have arrived at least two hours. And even that would be dicing with fate. Your friend would probably have dropped you off at arrivals and then taking off immediately. You would have downed the water that you had or thrown it out before you got to security. And then you'd have had to remove your jacket and then your shoes and then your belt. You'd have gone through TSAA, no longer airport-provided security, and you'd have made it through feeling tired and flustered before your flight had even began. Why the change? For those who are not uh, millennials, perhaps, you, you, you would know the answer for the change is because of Tuesday morning on September 11, when four coordinated terrorists attacked New York City 
and other places in America. And since that moment, that seminal moment in the life of our nation, everything changed. There was a before and an after. There are moments when we realize nothing will ever be the same and time is divided into two parts. The moment that happened before the event and every subsequent moment afterward. For you and for us, maybe that moment in your life was when you moved to a new city when you were 12 and all of a sudden you could reinvent yourself. You picked a new nickname to give to your classmates. You were able to move from under the shadow of a bully and life sprung new for you again. Perhaps for some of you that before and after was the first time that you tasted gelato and you realized you had been wasting your time with ice cream and there was before and there was after. Some of you, it was when you first got your car. It was a beater. It was a banger. It, it was terrible, but it was yours and life became before and after your first car. For some of you, the before and after were not as happy as gelato or a first car, but perhaps it was the day your spouse had a stroke. And after that moment, life was never the same. There was before and there was after. These seminal moments mark us indelibly in our life. They shape all the accompanying actions that come as a result of that moment. Our plans change, our loves are reordered, our convictions hardened, our decisions carry more weight because of an event which happened. Now this Easter, billions of Christians around the globe will be celebrating arguably the most consequential event in the history of the world. Yesterday in our Tenebrae service right here at the Walla Walla University Church, we sat in the pallid colors of Friday, of Jesus' betrayal, of his humiliation, of his beating, of his crucifixion on a Roman cross. We sat in that tenebrous darkness. And then we sit today, and it's Sabbath, and we look to Easter. And at this moment, when the shadow seems to veil the national and global ethic that we are going through, I wonder how we are going to turn toward Easter and toward Sunday. Dare we make the transition from the pallid colors of Friday to the pastel colors of Sunday? Dare we do that this afternoon? Are we able to speak of joy and resurrection in a moment where it seems that shadow and death is more real? We find ourselves in the midst of a collective trauma that both exposes, overwhelms, and compounds our suffering. As a nation, we are tired, we are stressed, we are anxious, we don't know when this thing will be over. We are falling apart at the seams. The 100,000 plus mortalities globally all have faces, all have names, all have stories. 
And yet in this new reality, I think even as followers of Jesus, we would be forgiven for thinking that Easter and Sunday is a slight mockery of the very real feelings that we have. Matthew, an apprentice of Jesus, recording the life of Jesus, recording the end of Jesus' life, recollects in his final moments a group of women who are in a moment that seems tenuous and tenebrous, who are in a moment where the risen Christ does not appear before them, where their hope of the future seems to have been vanquished. And Matthew recollects their experience. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you wherever you are to pick up your phone, your, your iPad, to pick up an actual paper Bible and to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to read how Matthew records this group of women. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read from verse 55. And it says, And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, laid it in a new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And verse 61, we see these women come back into view. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And so now the scene is set. Jesus Christ has been crucified. He's been placed in a new tomb, a room carved in a limestone outcrop. And then because it is sundown, these women who had been following Jesus head home because they are preparing for Sabbath. And for these women, the darkness became complete. Goodness had been extinguished. Evil had triumphed. There was no more hope. And then Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 reads, after Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. The gospel tells us that on the morning of the resurrection, these female followers of Jesus, these midwives of hope, set out for the tomb of their Lord. They were carrying spices as they would in ancient Jewish times to embalm the body, to pay homage to the one that they loved. But when they arrive, they don't find a dead body. In, in fact, when they arrive at the tomb, a series of incredible events begin to take place. An angel, we are told by Matthew, comes from heaven with a force of lightning and he sits on top of the tomb, rolls away the door like it's a pebble and declares to the women that Jesus Christ is not there. 
Matthew records that the guards are catatonic with fear. They are immobilized. They cannot move. The women are petrified at the scene of the tomb. Jesus has risen. This becomes the line which is drawn in the sand for billions of apprentices of Jesus around the globe. This becomes the mark before and the time after. The resurrection is everything or it is nothing. When resurrection enters into this story, Matthew has a slightly different take on it than the other synoptic gospels. He tells us that when the resurrection happens, there is a violent shaking. There is an earthquake. And I think it's apt that Matthew describes the resurrection in this way, that the resurrection cannot be ignored and cannot be moved to the side. The resurrection shakes everything. Listen to someone reflecting on the resurrection. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. And then he continues John Updike, in this poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, he says, Cell's disillusion did not reverse. The molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. He says, if the resurrection did not happen, then everything that we stand for as believers in Christ, everything that we profess to believe makes no difference. Now back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 5 and 7, we hear the angel speak. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. He said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. And then listen carefully as the angel says this key phrase that we will stay on for the next couple of moments. The angel says to the women, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. The new translation puts it that way. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told him. Now, I think it's a very curious expression that the angel tells these women, looking and searching for their Lord, these women who are uh, frightened, who are anxious, that the resurrected Lord is going into Galilee. Why Galilee, Mr. Angel? Why tell them that Jesus Christ is going ahead of them and he will meet them in Galilee? It's interesting because when you read the story of Jesus, you find that Galilee especially in the post-resurrection narratives, Galilee is not simply physical geography. It's not simply a place on a map. Galilee means more. First of all, Galilee in the post-resurrection stories is a place in your heart. Galilee symbolizes hope. It symbolizes dreams. It symbolizes the road of discipleship that all had once walked 
with Jesus. And that place and that time in their hearts when they had the most enthusiasm, when they had the most optimism and hope for the future. All of us have Galilees. I think my Galilee was maybe when I was 17. And I remember being full of hope and optimism for Jesus and the gospel. I remember uh, willfully foregoing playing football, willfully foregoing being with friends because I had met Jesus Christ and his word had become alive and the gospel was giving me hope. For some of you, your Galilee, the place where you first met and had optimism and joy and love for God was your first mission trip where Jesus Christ became alive as you served others. For others of you, it was summer camp when you had your first experience at the age of 13 and you realized that Jesus Christ loved you, that he was real. For others of you, Galilee may have been a bar where you met someone who was able to share the gospel in such a way that you radically changed and you decided you needed to follow Jesus. And so God tells them, go to Galilee. And now these women, just when they feel like their faith is dead, that it is only a fantasy, that they have no hope, they are told to go back to the place where it all began. Go back to Galilee, the angel says, he will meet you there. And they go back to the special place of their heart, of their dream, and of their hope. And sure enough, Jesus appears to them there. Ronald Rollheiser, commenting in his book, The Passion and the Cross, says that ultimately the resurrection challenges us to go back to Galilee, to return to the dream, the hope, and the discipleship that had once inflamed us, but that is now crucified. To go back to the place where we were once alive in Christ, to mark our life as post-resurrection Christians by going to Galilee. Where is your Galilee this afternoon? Where is that seminal moment that indelibly marked you and caused you to change your life's direction? to change your plans, to reorder your loves, to change your career, to move from one town to another. Where is your Galilee? And it's interesting because the second post-resurrection story that I want to look at this afternoon is another time when an angel or Jesus himself comes to his disciples and points them in a different direction than where they were going. This story is found on the road to Emmaus, and it's not found in Matthew's retelling, but it is found in Luke. It's a parallel telling. And it's interesting because as I was preparing for the sermon today, the road to Emmaus grabbed me probably more than any other passage as I tried to navigate this feeling within my own heart of the, the, the seeming dissolution and the hopelessness which seems to have gripped us and the clarion call that Jesus has towards Sunday and toward resurrection. Emmaus was incredibly helpful for me. So this episode on the road to Emmaus is set 
not in the dusking shadows of crucifixion, but it's set in the dawning light of resurrection. And it's important because this story will throw you for a loop. It's not set in the dusking shadows of crucifixion, but in the dawning light of resurrection. Emmaus is after Jesus Christ has risen. After there is good news, this is Emmaus. And so Luke chapter 24 tells us that there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus who stood still feeling sad. Post-resurrection, still carrying grief, still feeling sad, feeling like they were the last people on an evacuated world. And it feels like this moment, I think, for many of us in 2020, living on the other side of Easter, that happened thousands of years ago, yet in many ways feeling sorrowful. And for Luke, Jerusalem, like Galilee, for the other gospel writers, means the dream, the hope, and the kingdom that all hope came from. And we're told in Luke that the disciples who are walking toward Emmaus, they're walking toward Emmaus, are walking away from Jerusalem. So they're walking toward Emmaus, but away from Jerusalem. And for Luke, Jerusalem is like Galilee. It's the place of hope. It's a place of dreams. It's the place of inflamed optimism in Jesus. And these disciples are walking away from hope and from Jerusalem, and they're walking toward Emmaus. Now, Emmaus was a Roman spa town, a Las Vegas, a a Monte Carlo of human consolation. It's where you went when you felt down in the dumps. You went to Emmaus when life was difficult. When you needed a break, you would go to Emmaus. And here we find these disciples whose dreams have been crucified. These disciples who are discouraged, who are hope emptied, walking away from Jerusalem and walking toward human consolation in Emmaus muttering to themselves, "Ah, but we'd hoped. We thought that following Jesus would have meant that our life would not have been this difficult. We had hoped and he let us down. But when you read Luke chapter 24, you find that they never make it to Emmaus. Why don't they make it to Emmaus? They don't make it to Emmaus because Jesus, the resurrected and risen Christ, appears to them on the road. And he reshapes their hope in light of the crucifixion and turns them back toward Jerusalem. Jesus turns them from Emmaus back to Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace. He turns them away from looking for hope in human consolation to looking at the divine truth that the resurrected Christ is alive. That is the dream to the road of discipleship that we embark on. And what Luke 
is telling them, and what I think is critical for all of us struggling, but pushing forward toward Easter this weekend, is this important truth that whenever we are discouraged in our faith, whenever our hopes seem to be crucified, we need to go back to Galilee and to Jerusalem. Now, the temptation, of course, is that whenever we feel suffering, whenever the kingdom doesn't seem to work, is to abandon our trust in Jesus for human consolation. There's a temptation for us to set out for Emmaus and for the consolation of Las Vegas and Monte Carlo rather than going toward Jerusalem. You know, this week I was reading something in Axios and a writer wrote something which was fascinating to me and it probably will come as no surprise to you, but it came as confirmation for me in how many of us are moving from Jerusalem toward Emmaus or who are not moving away and not going toward Galilee. Sarah Fisher wrote an article, not a Christian, no faith, and the title of the article was Virus Vices. We're talking again right now about moving from human consolation toward divine reality, moving from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. And so she writes in Virus Vices, she reports that Americans are doubling down on their worst vices to cope with the mental and emotional stress of coronavirus. Alcohol sales are up, weed sales are booming, porn consumption is up, people are eating more, exercising less, domestic violence is skyrocketing, firearm sales have surged, and experts worry about the long-term effects on our nation after the virus has passed. Collectively, my friends, as you sit in your living rooms this morning, as you sit around your kitchen table this afternoon, our nation is engaged in a long march toward Emmaus, toward human consolation. Our hope in the liturgies of the Western life have crumbled and we are desperately disappointed. And this afternoon, if your life approximate in any, any way, with the despair that is engulfing our nation through this virus. Know that the resurrection of Christ created a way out of these spirals of despair and that Jesus Christ still calls us who are walking toward Emmaus to say in light of the resurrection, go to Jerusalem, to the city of peace, to the city of God. You may barely believe in God. You may have grown up in church and drifted away. You may have had a bad experience which gave you pause about organized religion. You may just have stopped going because you were too busy to church, but you find yourself this morning hopeless. And we come as disciples of Jesus, to say resurrection means you don't need to stay hopeless. And for those who are watching, you have followed Jesus 
your whole life. Perhaps you follow Jesus just for a couple of months. You know that resurrection means that Jesus comes to interrupt our march and we don't need to go to Emmaus in light of the resurrection. Christ meets us on the road. Christ meets you on the road this afternoon. He convicts our hearts. He explains the latest crucifixions to us and he sends us back to Galilee. He sends us back to Jerusalem and he tells us not to abandon our hope in him. This afternoon, I'm also fully aware that resurrection it's not only about hopes, but it's about a clean start. It's about wiping the slate clean. And many of us need to hear this. Have you ever hurt someone in your life? Have you ever blundered in ways that left you crippled with guilt and with shame? Do you find yourself wondering if God wishes you would simply go away and disappear? Do you imagine God is as scornful of your failure as you are, or as your ex-wife or your children or your parents are of your failure? Where are you this afternoon? Because this message of resurrection is this, that God's response to human failure, to my failure, to your failure, to our failure, in light of resurrection, your parents' failure, your children's failure, your spouse's failure, God's response to failure, no matter how grievous, is resurrection. And so this Easter, it doesn't matter that we cannot be together in church that the seats are empty, that you are at home and we are here, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you are watching on your laptop or you're trying to stream this on your phone or you're watching on YouTube or you're following us on Facebook. It doesn't matter. In the end, what made Easter morning matter was not the packed sanctuary. It was not the rites and the celebrations. Just as the quietness of that first Easter morning did not determine if the stone was rolled away, if resurrection happened, the locked doors of our churches don't determine it either. The truest fact, my friends, of the universe this Easter is not death tolls, it's not empty sanctuaries, it's not overcrowded hospitals. I agree with Tish Harrison Warren, who says that the truest fact of the universe is an empty tomb. That the resurrection is the truest evidence that love triumphs over death, that weakness prevails over strength and beauty outlives ashes. If Jesus, my friends, is risen in actual history, with all the palpability of flesh, fingers, bone, blood. There is hope that our mourning will be comforted. There is hope that death will not have the final word. And so we can still shout as a people, dispersed though we are, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And God hears our triumphant cries this afternoon. No matter how hampered they are by 
fears of unemployment, of sickness, and of death. And Satan and the powers of evil hear them too, and they tremble. So wherever you are this afternoon, whatever situation you are facing, in anticipation of all the Sundays that Christ will bring, in hope of all the resurrections that he will bring, in defiance of the tomb and the marches toward death, join me this afternoon in declaring he is risen. He is risen indeed.